brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Prep Radio on time, on target. Very excited this episode to have on uh, Edward Black, Captain Edward Black, uh, who is a guy that you found, Jack. And I think it makes sense. We'll get into it with him. But there's a there's a heavy uh, law, law enforcement community who listens to the podcast, so it's cool to get someone from that community on who's written about and it. We don't have very many police officers on the show because no. we focus more on the military. And when we do, I mean, I mean, we've had like NYPD cops on yeah. before, but then those are big town police departments, obviously big city police departments. And to be fair, you know, like the one I'm thinking of is Ricky. He's he's a newer police officer. He's not, you know, this guy's had a 20 year career. Yeah. Well, you hear and we'll get into this. Well, I'll ask uh, I'll ask um, Edward about it, but you don't really hear from small town police officers too often it's like one of those things that kind of like slips through the cracks like you hear about big cities and you hear about big city corruption and big city police brutality but you don't so often hear about small town police departments um and especially if you look at small town newspapers they've been closing down in record numbers like there's very there's very few small town newspapers nowadays so there's not too much reporting on them um, and then even from the standpoint of like police officers writing books about their career, again, not so much you, you, that out there that you hear from small town cops. So I think it's actually when I when I can't stumble across this book, I thought, it, well, that's kind of a, a unique um, a unique point of view that we can reach out there and grab and get on the podcast that you don't hear from very often. Yeah, I, I agree. And oftentimes when you do hear stories out of uh you know, small towns, police officer stuff. It's always like a negative story. This guy also, to be honest, he doesn't yeah. paint a rosy picture of everything. He's very blunt no. about, hey, this is the politics in small town, you know, America. Yeah. And- I'm, I'm about halfway through the book, uh, maybe a little bit more. And uh, it, it's a politically incorrect book. Yeah, oh, very much. So. <laughs> and it's a, it's a quick read. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to speaking with Edward about it. Uh, before we do... This news story just hit the wire, so by the time this goes up, we'll know more. But uh, it's actually a Safrop Radio listener alerted me to this right before we started recording. Um, suspicious packages found at uh, Heathrow Airport. Am I saying that right? In London? Heathrow, uh, yeah. Yeah, Heathrow Airport, London City Airport, and Waterloo Railway Station were bombs, police say. Uh, and I'm getting this from the Independent. Counterterror officers are investigating the three devices as linked following a series of evacuations on Tuesday. One of the packages was opened by office staff at Heathrow Airport and burst into flame, which, by the way, that's got to be scary as hell. 
Um, but police said no one was injured. Scotland Yard was not ruled out of the existence of other bombs and had, uh, has issued advice to transport hubs across London to be vigilant for and report suspicious packages to police. The packages, all A4-sized white postal bags containing yellow jiffy bags, have been, have been assessed by special officers to be uh, small improvised explosive devices. And it goes on, but... Uh, as we've had, you know, EOD guys on the show, it's got to be a really scary job. I would yeah. think as something burst into flames, you don't know if that's possibly the end of your life or if it's just a small, you know, shitty explosive. Yeah, I mean, just the initial report makes it sound like it's kind of a amateur hour. Like, who is that guy who is sending pipe bombs to like CNN? I remember the story. You remember yeah. the guy, the crazy, uh, you know, like Trump guy down in Florida with all the stickers all over his truck and everything. Yeah, I remember um, a certain guy in the conspiracy realm who gets media time saying it was like Democrats sending it to themselves, but yeah, that was it, not what it was. It's George George Soros <laughs> bombing himself, of course. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly what it sounds like. And and as you said, no one was injured. I mean, that happens a lot. but And hopefully that, that remains the case. The, the unfortunate thing really is, and this is like the, you know, the negative of free speech, as much as I'm an advocate for free speech, is that you could pretty much find how to make anything on the Internet nowadays, especially on the dark web. So more and more people have access to making real explosive devices that could cause mass yeah. casualties. Well, I mean, you can... And, and this has always been the case. I mean, you can go down to your local library and, and take out books about how to make a bomb. The anarchist cookbook and, and all that. And well, then the anarchist cookbook came around and then it was also on the internet and everything else. And, and people kind of went crazy about the internet because of that. But for that reason, you'd find anything there. But I mean, you could go and get a chemistry book at your local library and, and learn how to make a bomb. I'm sure there's certain books, though, especially in the, uh, you know, I, I've never taken out a book on such things, but like, with political correctness nowadays with what you can and can't take out or what they have at your library now. I bet you start, some of those books are no longer there. Chemistry books? I mean, no, I just mean something like the anarchist cookbook. I don't, I don't think libraries ever had the anarchist cookbook, like public libraries. And also, because of the Patriot Act, there, there were reports of, you know, libraries tracking what people were taking out. You know, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, during the you know Patriot Act, there were also people uh, infiltrating like anti-war groups and all different types of things. The Patriot Act was definitely a, a huge violation of people's free speech. Well, it, it is a huge violation. But, yeah, yeah, since it's still uh, there. Actually, I, I was having this conversation not well, not about this, but about um, sort of separate subject regarding domestic terrorism or Americans getting involved in in, in various types of terrorism here and also abroad. Um, as it relates to um, liberation theology in the Catholic Church. Um, and it's very interesting to see, like, Jesuit priests and others, um, like that whole article series that we published about Dave Baez, the Green Beret who joined the Sandinistas. He went into um, from Nicaragua into Honduras with an armed column, communist uh, guerrilla, uh, guerrillas. And uh, one of the other people in that column was uh, Father Carney, who is a an American Jesuit priest who renounced his citizenship and um, and dedicated himself towards you know communist revolutions? Um, so there's this very interesting history with Catholics um, and with Christians going in for liberation theology. I mean, it's not like it's a huge movement uh, uh, within Catholicism, but the, these people do exist. And there's uh, I, was, I was reminding um, the author Greg Walker of that uh, article about the Sandinista. Um, 
about uh, something else I came across when I was doing work on the Dakota Access Pipeline story. And there were two um, young women, young American women, who sabotaged the pipeline out there. And uh, their names were Ruby and uh, Jennifer. Um, I think it was Jennifer Rasnicek and Ruby... Montoya, I believe, were the two names of, of those two young women. And they, um, they were both Catholics, belonged to some Catholic workers organization, and they saw themselves as um, being the continuation of what was called the Plowshares Movement or Plowshard Movement. Um, they were Catholic anti-nuclear protesters um, in the 1980s who like staged actions, um, what they would call a direct action, where they go in and, and sabotage um, you know, infrastructure and things like that. Mm. So there's this very interesting um, thing happening there that it, it's nothing new. It's been happening for decades as far as liberation theology um, within this one faction of Catholicism. Um, just very interesting subject. I don't claim to be an expert on it, um, but I think uh, I think Greg is actually working on some follow-up pieces um, that are going to explore that a little bit more. I, I know he told me yesterday he's he's reading Father Carney's autobiography that he wrote before he he, he was eventually killed. He was executed and killed in Honduras. Um, but the he's reading like the the four hundred page autobiography that talks about. He talks very much about liberation theology and, and how he got involved in that. That's it. That'll be interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. So I wanted to let you guys know, I mentioned this on a podcast recently and I put it up on Instagram and Twitter. Um, when we record on March 14th, I'm going to make it a Q and a show. Cause we haven't done that in a while. We usually do our thing where we do spotlight interviews. So I'm saving all the emails for that show. Send them in. We're getting some great ones. Uh, even CJ Ramon sent in a question, which I want to get him back on the show. Just get him yeah. in the studio. It'd be great. Um, so softrep.radio at softrep.com. But keep them concise. You know, I get a lot of really long emails that I'm just not going to read on the show. So if you have, you know, a specific question and not like guest suggestions, I do get that and I appreciate it. But I'd like to see specific questions, stuff that Jack could answer, stuff that possibly I could oh, answer. Oh, and Ian just... Uh Shoot me over those emails when you collect them. Yeah, um, because we'll do. I will. There are some, do some research. Some, yeah. yeah, there are some questions people ask, and I just don't know the answer off the top of my head. Yeah, I'll forward them. We have we have a bunch right now, so I'll have I'll have some that I yeah. could. Uh, but I will uh, I will try to find out. Okay, we'll do. Yeah, so send those in softrep.radio at softrep.com, and then we'll we'll spend that whole show um, doing emails from you guys, and then I'll be off to Florida, and while I am. I have a uh, interview in the can with Kristen Beck, so we'll be able to air that. And it was cool; it was just a one-on-one myself and Kristen. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry I missed that. Yeah, but you know, you, you've been busy. I know. Which, by the way, with your audio. Yeah, we, yeah. I just finished recording the audio book for my memoir uh, yesterday, so that's done. People are excited for that. Then the other thing I'm going to get to here is we were tagged in this Instagram post from a uh, Hunter Own One Two Three at Hunter Own One Two Three on Instagram. And I guess he lives in the area where the Corvius stuff is going down. And what he wrote was, um, so Sofrep does a podcast. One week later, there's a congressional hearing. Two weeks later, Corvius is emailing, apologizing, and reopening community centers that were closed. Three weeks later, these Corvius hard at work signs pop up, and they're filling potholes. Good job, guys. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a, you know Corvius hard at work in front of this house here. So I guess he lives in the area. Uh, to be completely honest, I think it would be 
uh, kind of ridiculous for us to take sole credit for this happening. But yeah, you know, it, it, it moves like it moves the notch a little bit. It's it's because of a um an increasingly large group of um military spouses, um you know the military wives who have banded together and have you know really tried to put pressure on Corvius. And, and there are other groups also that are you know they feel are behaving like slum lords um on military posts. And so they have done all kinds of stuff, and you know we were we were one little small part of that. Exactly, they, they, yeah. they watched, they reached out to us, and I, I uh, the um, Reuters did that big article about the subject. I was more than happy to have them on. Um, I, I talked to a few of uh, of those uh, young ladies the other day, and they were asking if we could cover some of the updates and some of the things that are continuing to happen with it. And actually, I, I assigned the, that story to Joey. He's working on it now. Nice. Who's been on the show before. Um, but yeah, it's good to see that, that some progress is being made. What, what kind of sucks, though, and this is like the state of things in America now, uh, oftentimes, it's like people have to be shamed into doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, there's some real meaningful change. Oh, and the other thing I wanted to get into real quick, um, if we have a few minutes for it, yeah, we have. Is um, I wrote an article um, that is up on NewsRep. What is it? TheNewsRep.com. Yes, sir. Um, about uh, it's about Iran, and it's uh, I spent quite a while researching this whole thing, but really, what it's about is what would it look like if the United States government ever decided that we were going to topple the Iranian regime if we were going to go and do that, as has been threatened many times and talked about quite a bit. Something has to be done about Iran. Um, there is a whole plan in place. There are multiple plans, actually. And that plan was brought to President Obama in 2013, and he shut it down. He's like, no, we're not doing that. And instead, he pursued the Iran deal. Um now, you see uh, some of the things going on in the White House today. Um, we had that interview with Andy Polsky the other day, too. Mm-hmm. We were talking about you know, how President Trump is surrounded by people like John Bolton and Pompeo who are whispering in his ear. Um, no, and, and no longer Mattis, which... Uh, who's... A, so, sorry to interrupt with this, but did you see that speech that Trump gave at CPAC where he said he gave Mattis the nickname yeah, Mad Dog Mattis? yeah. Um, and Matt, and I get into that in the article a little bit because Mattis was one of the, um, one of the, the stumbling blocks, uh, yeah. to, to doing potentially doing Iran because he was like, no, we need to pump the brakes here. And, and it's speculation, but it's very possible that that was a factor in him leaving. I think he mentions that. I mean, I don't think that's speculation that it was because we were pulling out of, um, Syria. Yeah. And I don't think he said anything about Iran specifically. Right. But. Right. Um, and, and then after he left, Trump quickly reversed course and said, no, we're staying in Syria. We're staying in Iraq so we can watch Iran and we can counter Iran. So it makes you wonder if the whole thing wasn't just a provocation to get Mattis out of there. Um, but the article I wrote, it, um, it looks at the strategic um, strike packages that could potentially be used against Iran, um, all of the mitigating factors, where we would have to stage out of around the world to go and do this attack, how the Israelis would be involved in it, um, developing new generations of bunker buster munitions. But I think the, the bulk of the article um, and what it really focuses on is um, JSOC operations that would have to take place or would be planned to take place. Um, and this is part of the hardly, hardened, deeply buried structure mission set that they have um, that not all of these underground nuclear facilities that Iran has or potential facilities can be penetrated with bunker busters. 
So that means we actually have to put boots on the ground to go in there, explosively breach and penetrate these underground facilities, and then destroy whatever kinds of WMD materials are in there. And actually, they have even been assigned the mission of stealing the weapon. If there is a nuclear weapon, to actually steal it, uh, grab that, uh, and bring it out and actually load it onto the back of a helicopter and fly the fuck out of there. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, very interesting uh, story. And some of the things I wrote about is um, regarding them doing, our, you know, our operators out in the, the Nevada test site, um, out in the middle of nowhere, doing these training exercises, going deep underground and underground tunnels and doing explosive breaching, training to, to breach heavy portal doors, going in there with like crane systems to lift a nuclear warhead off of a, you know, a scud launcher. Um, all of these different things that would take place uh, or most likely take place, depending on what option we went with, if we ever invaded Iran or decided to depose of that regime. Um, so, I mean, you know, over a beer, I can weigh in on it and tell you if I think it's all a good idea or not, but I think you can go and read the article yourself and and reach some of your own conclusions. Um, a lot of the stars would really have to align for us to be able to pull that off. I'll I'll put it that way. Yeah. All right. So, uh, is, are you saying that's up right now? Yeah, it's up right now. So check that out. Uh, the newsrep.com. Uh, with that, a couple other quick things that I'll cover, but I'll get to that um, after Edward Black. So let's get right over to Edward. So on the show for the first time, Edward Black, 20-year career as a police officer in Kaufman, Texas, retired as a captain and is the author of Captain Black, True Stories of a Small Town Cop. Uh, before we get into the book itself, I, I do want to ask you about the the book is only available as far as I see on this website, lulu.com. It's not available on Amazon. There's no uh, digital version. I wanted to kind of ask you about that because I think a lot of people are going to want to uh, read this after the interview with you. And I'll definitely link to the lulu.com store. But why uh, why not on Amazon? I feel like every self-published book uh, gets up on Amazon. <laughs> well, <laughs> Uh, the best answer to that is uh, because I'm not really uh, that computer literate. And after I published the book on Lulu.com, uh, for some reason, I just can't make the book fit all of their requirements to be put on Amazon. Hmm. Uh, I know it, it's crazy, but uh, I'm still working on trying to get it on Amazon. It's just so many require, technical requirements uh, that have to be met. I wonder why. To, uh, That's kind of interesting, though, because I feel like, you know, Jack, you've self-published. and it, From what I know, it's a pretty easy process. It's probably just formatting issues. But uh, yeah, Edward, yeah, this, is, is. this is Jack. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. I, I stumbled across your book. I can't even remember how. And um, I was like, oh, this is kind of an interesting, unique opportunity because we usually have military guys on here, usually special operations uh, veterans. But and we've had a few police officers from like big police departments like NYPD every once in a while. But I feel like you very rarely hear from small town cops and and you guys definitely have a story to tell and have uh, have a perspective specific to being a small town police officer. And beyond that, I mean, I'm halfway through your book right now, and I have to tell you, I was just laying in bed reading it last night, giggling to myself because it was so funny. And it, the way you tell yeah. stories, I, I think, is very indicative of how, you know, cops talk. You didn't try to sugarcoat things. 
No, I, I tried to be uh, as real. Uh, so I wanted it to come across as as if it was just me telling my stories. And uh, everyone that knows me knows that, uh, you know, I, I really don't sugarcoat a lot. I, I just put it put it out there, and uh, that's how I wanted the book to come across. Well, let's start at the beginning a little bit, because I'd like to get into some of these funny stories and maybe ask some, some more serious questions about police work. But um, before that, I mean, let's just start at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and, and how you how and why you became a police officer? Well, I... I was born in Dallas, Texas, raised up all around uh, this area. And uh, for as long as I could remember, uh, I wanted to be a, a cop. And uh, I got a late start, uh, got out of high school, got married, had a had a baby, and uh, was, was just worried about paying bills. And then uh, when I finally got to a point where I could uh, put myself through the police academy, uh, I jumped on it and... Uh, I started as a reserve officer in, in, in Kaufman. Uh, Kaufman's about 30 miles southeast of Dallas, and uh, I think the population right around 7,000. Uh, so it's a nice, small town. Uh, never wanted to be a big city cop. Never wanted to work in Dallas or Fort Worth or anywhere like that. Uh, I, I was always raised in, in small towns, and, and I feel comfortable in small towns, so that's where I wanted to work. And uh, started out as a reserve officer, uh, put in about two years, and then went full-time. And uh, 20 years later, <laughs> I decided to hang it up. So. Do you want to tell the story about your first day on the job? Because, I mean, I, I think that's kind of where your book begins, and uh, it, it was quite eventful. <laughs> uh, it is unreal. Uh, I mean, I, I was – my first day uh, – as a reserve officer, uh, full, you know, gun toting badge wearing, off, and uh, I get in the car with uh, my first training officer, and uh, I was supposed to just ride around with him for a few hours. And we weren't in the car hardly any time, and we're in pursuit. Got in pursuit with a truck that had three guys in it, uh, chased them through the neighborhood. They, Ripped out in a ditch. <laughs> I bail out of the, the car. I don't even know what I'm doing. I mean, I, I was just frozen, terrified, you know. I had, I've been in this car for less than an hour, I think. And uh, I look over, my training officer's got his gun pointed at the truck, and I'm like, well, crap, I guess I better pull my gun. So <laughs> pull my gun out and uh, got that done. We took some folks to jail, and... Uh, Got back to the station, and it was time for that officer to go off duty. So I got in the car with another officer, and uh, I wasn't in the car with him very long. And uh, we're, we're rolling up through one of the one of the bad neighborhoods in Kaufman. We call it the Hills, and a lot of drug activity. And uh, we're, we're approaching a crowd, probably twenty, twenty-five people standing in the street. Uh, and as we passed, the off, the training officer asked me, he says, did you see the guy in the red shirt? I said, yeah, I saw him. So well, we've got a warrant for him. Well, I'm going to circle back around, and uh, we're going to hook him up. Okay. So we do. We circle back around. We pull over. Uh, we get out of the car, and the officer calls him by name. And 
guy looks at us and comes over there. So he gets over there. We tell him he's got a warrant. I put handcuffs on him. He starts screaming, jumping up and down, you know. I thought, that's not me. That's not me. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, it's you. You're just lying, you know. Keep in mind, it's my first day. And uh, so we do some checking. The other officer does a little more checking and come find out it wasn't him, the guy we were looking for. So we take the handcuffs off of him and uh, get back in the car. This guy beat us back to the station <laughs> because he wanted to file complaints against us. So I haven't been in the car a full shift yet. I've been in pursuit, and I got my first complaint. And that's about how it went. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, the, in, in the beginning of the book, you also talk about something else I thought was interesting about you know, you sign up to be a small town cop and you think your job is to, you know, enforce the law, but you end up having to be like all of these other things. You have to be like a, a social worker, a, a psychic, a grief counselor, uh, you know, a security guard, like all these other roles. I was wondering if you could talk about just what, what you meant by that and all of these different things you end up having to do as a small town cop that maybe the average person doesn't expect when you know, you strap on a gun and a badge. Sure. Well, you know, people who live in, in larger cities, you know, they would never think about calling the cops uh, to come, let's say, light their pilot light on their water heater or their stove. And for some reason, in small towns, if you have any kind of a problem, they call the cops. <laughs> they call us for it. It would blow your mind. Um, I've been called, uh, of course, to, uh, you know, moms who can't get their kids out of bed to go to school and called to go over there and get them out of bed, get them to the school. Uh, I've been, I've been called, uh, there's one story in my book about being called because, uh, an elderly lady, uh, thought she smelled a dead mouse in her wall and wanted me to knock a hole in the wall, uh, to get the mouse out. Uh, I mean, I mean, this is totally different than being, a, you know, a New York City cop, as you were saying, in that, you know, I'm pretty sure you call a New York City cop for these minor complaints. They probably hang right up on you, and rightfully so. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, we, we, I've been called because people needed a ride to the grocery store, uh, you know, I mean. So just, what do you do? Do you give, them, do you give them a ride to the grocery store, though? <laughs> I don't mean a ride to the grocery store. I mean, if they were... <laughs> You know, most of them were older citizens, and, and you know, if they're not busy, what's it going to hurt to give them a ride to the grocery store? So, yeah, I mean, we do all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. like that. It's just kind of interesting in that, I mean, I guess it helps, you know, keep that good relationship between the uh, police officers and the community in, in a small community yeah. like that. But, uh, I mean, I just couldn't imagine it, and it's a totally different way of living, I guess. Um, I think I've mentioned on the show before, but, like, when I was in South Dakota and saw Badlands National Park, it was the first time I went to a gas station and I tried to pay them for gas. And they were like, no, 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 you just fill up, you pay us later. It's just a, a very different mentality than being here in you know New York City or Long Island where I live, where, like I said, I'm pretty sure they would hang right up on you, elderly or not, <laughs> disabled or not, if you asked for a ride to the grocery store. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's so different. Uh, you know, we have certain characters that we're, we always deal with uh, in, in smaller towns and in Kaufman, especially. For some reason, we have more than that. Uh, 
But, for instance, we had uh, an elderly lady who had some mental issues, and for some reason she felt the need uh, about two or three times a month to come over and just set random items on the on the porch outside the uh, police department's door. And uh, these could be anything from shoes or, or dirty clothes or, or food. Uh, she would just set them outside, and she would leave a note uh, in the bag saying, you need to watch these uh, license plate numbers. They're selling drugs. And she'd have some random license plate numbers down there. And uh, I remember one time uh, I came in early, and, and I saw the bag sitting there. I knew immediately who it who it had come from, and uh, I go over and pick up the bag, and it's got a loaded nine millimeter pistol. <laughs> oh shit! Wow. And uh, <laughs> we we go over and talk to her, and uh, she's not anymore. So she just stuck it in a uh, Walmart plastic bag and brought it up there and set it on the porch. You know, in the book, it's just always weird stuff like that that goes on in small towns. You also talk about some stories in here that are, uh, you know, beyond the curious and the weird and the funny. I mean, there's some pretty serious stuff, too. Like, you relate that one story about how uh, you almost got clobbered by a guy who was a, a murderer and rapist. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I wish time. <laughs> oh, the, I was thinking hey, about the one where the guy escaped from uh, from the county lockup. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that gentleman, yeah, he's since been... Uh, sent to meet his maker by Texas, the state of Texas. So he had raped and murdered an, an 87-year-old woman. And uh, when uh, one night, when it was just me and another rookie officer on duty, he, he uh, managed to escape from the county jail. And uh, that I, I mean, I don't know how much of the story you want me to tell, but it, it that was one that... Uh, really made me stop and think about what I, how I needed to be when I'm out on some of these calls because it really woke me up. No, go, go ahead. Can you tell that story? Uh, I think that uh, people will be interested. Yeah, okay. One night, uh, I don't. I hadn't been on the force very long. Uh, I'm not even sure if I'd have had my first year down, but I ended up being the officer in charge, and there was another officer who was a rookie. And uh, it was just him and I working the uh, streets that night. And it was like a a night out of a movie, out of a horror movie. It was dark, quiet, and as foggy as it could be. And uh, we we never had a lot of fog around here. But that night, it was just really foggy. You couldn't see probably, oh, 300 yards. I mean, it was just really dark. And... uh, we got a call about a prowler at a residence. So we go over there, and uh, I didn't pay attention to the name on you know, who it was. We're just trying to find out, is there a prowler? Did she just get spooked? And uh, so I stopped and talked to her, and come to find out, I know who she is. She's the mother of this guy that had murdered the elderly lady. <clears throat> His name was William Murray. And... Uh, it's his mom. And she says, yeah, somebody was jiggling the door handle and uh, trying to get in. And when I asked who it was, they let, they took off. And uh, right about that time, we get a, another call 
which was on the other side of town, and uh, of a prowler trying to get in a house. So I seen the uh, the other officer over there, and uh, I stayed with Mrs. Murray there, talking to her. So a few minutes later, uh, he gives me a call, and he says, uh, this is William Murray's ex-wife. And she says someone's trying to get in the house over here. And I'm thinking, and that, that's kind of strange. Yeah. So I hollered at him to come meet with me, and we met up. And, I, I, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, surely he didn't get out of jail. I mean, you know, he's in for capital murder. And uh, about that time, my dispatcher, uh, Robin Smith, she calls me. And Robin, you know, she, she had a way on the radio. And she was always smooth, professional, you know, didn't really get excited on the radio or anything like that. And she calls us and she says, you need to come to the station right now. And I thought, oh, my God, he got out of jail. <laughs> And he's in this town somewhere. So we run up to the station. We walk in the door. And sure enough, she tells me, William Murray has escaped from the jail. And the county jail was in in our town. So I call my lieutenant, wake him up. He's the one that actually worked the case on Murray. And uh, I tell him, I said, Lieutenant, William Murray has escaped from jail. He's in town somewhere. He keeps trying to get in houses. And I, I all I hear from him is, like, oh, shit. And he slams down the phone. So we started calling every cop in the county. Get over here. We need some help. And, uh, of course, you know, help comes from every direction. And... Uh, we're just looking for him. We're trying to find him. I mean, we don't have a, a, a we don't know where he's at. I mean, he's been on both sides of town. Uh, we don't know if he's got a weapon. I mean, we just don't know. But we know he's loose in town somewhere. So during this this time period, uh, there's a trailer park, and across the street from the trailer park, this field uh, had a bunch of lumber piled up in it, and I mean, the grass was probably knee high. And I thought, well, I'll go out and check this field, you know, see if he's hiding out here. So I start on one side of the field and working my way across it. And I was probably about 150 yards out in this in this field, and uh, my flashlight goes dead. I mean, no warning, just instantly goes dead. Uh, it is darkest night. I'd ever seen with the fog and the darkness and everything. It was, it was crazy. So I'm, I make my way back out of the field, go to the station, get me a new flashlight. And about this time we were setting up a perimeter around town. Uh, and I ended up not going back to the field. I, I went over and met up with a deputy. So a little bit later, one of the deputies, thinks that he saw somebody run across this road from the pasture that I was I was in to another pasture, a much bigger pasture. And deputy swears he saw somebody run across there. So we're setting up a, a perimeter around this gigantic pasture. And I'm sitting there uh, on one of the streets with a, with a deputy, and we're just sitting there talking, waiting on some dogs from the prison to come up, uh, some bloodhounds. 
see if we can't track this guy down. And uh, standing here talking to this guy, probably about 20 minutes, and suddenly he just he just jerks to attention. I mean, scares me. He stops. He you know kind of squats a little bit, and he takes off running through this field or to this field towards a tree line. And so I take off with him. I don't. I'm like, what the hell? Where, where is he? Where is he? And uh, sure enough, right out probably. 30 yards from us, this, this asshole had crawled under a, a blanket, a dark blanket, and was hiding there in the grass. And for some reason, he looked up, and right at that moment, that deputy was looking there and saw him. And uh, so we run over there, and, and I put the imprint of my six hour in the middle of his forehead, dared him to move, and uh, we hooked him up. Sheriff gets on the radio, bring him to my office. <laughs> so he went over there, and uh, everything kind of calmed down. And I know it's a long story, but it's got a real good ending. Yeah. <laughs> so I, the sheriff gets him over there, and, and you know, he, they do whatever. They interview him, find out how he got out of jail and all this good stuff. Well, he told the, he told, uh, the sheriff and some of the other uh, deputies over there that, uh, uh, that, uh, that one cop, he, he one of them cops real lucky. Uh, he said, that son of a bitch got within about 15 feet of me. And I had a two by four in my hand was fixing to lay him out, uh, because I needed his gun and his flashlight went dead. So he turned around and went the other way. Uh, That's that creepy. Make you butt pucker. Nothing will. And uh, this gentleman was uh, put to death by the good state of Texas, as as you mentioned. Yeah, the state of Texas solved his problem for him. <laughs> <laughs> well said, man. The the, uh, the story that caught my eye the most, honestly, was um, you know you catching that pedophile. The guy was flashing. Oh yeah, kids at the school, and and the the thing that that I really like about your writing style too is is I I think you set the scene very well of that. Every day at the you know police station for you, it, it seems like it was monotonous, same thing a lot of days. And then someone will come in and it'll change the course of everything. And I really feel the excitement as you're going out and and finding this guy, you know, in the days that followed, and, and you taking the initiative to say, you know, hey, I'll use my own car because you know this guy is not going to get caught if we're in the area with a police uh, vehicle. I, I thought that was right. just a great story, and and I could, I could just feel the rush from you as, as you finally caught this guy and, you know, got to put your hands on him and, and put him away. Oh yeah. That, that, that was, that's one of my proudest moments right there of my career. Uh, because that guy, it was going to go from bad to worse yeah. with him. It was just a matter of time. And, uh, but yeah, he, he was, uh, driving around and flashing, uh, kids from this elementary school, a uh, little girl, and he would he would drive up he would wait until school let out and they're all walking down the street and uh, then he would drive real slow past them and he'd raise himself up so that they could see his his packer basically and uh so one little girl told her parent her mom about it and of course mom runs her up to the station and we're talking to her and, and what, something that struck me about this little girl is she, i mean she was probably Oh, seven, eight years old. And this child, she had details. 
I mean, she told us exactly what that truck looked like. And, and I mean, just her memory was just, I knew immediately that this child's not making anything up. She's telling the truth. And we got to get this guy. So, of course, I go over there. I spend a while looking for him. Can't find any, any truck that matches that description. And then we had another child come forward and say basically the same story and the same description, but she said it was it was a blue, uh, it turned out to be a blue Mustang. She said, no, it was a blue car. It wasn't a truck. And uh, so now we've got two vehicles that we can look for. And, and, and I tell the detective, I said, look, y'all got me over here driving up and down the street in this squad car. I mean, he's not going to do it with a cop sitting there. So... I went to my sergeant and I said, you know, I'm going to take my own car over here and see if I can't catch this asshole. And, uh, you know, small town, there's only two or three of us on duty at a time. I was like, okay, but let's do your radio and, you know, if you get a bad call or something, you got to come back. Okay. Yeah. If you got someone who needs to to get groceries, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, go, exactly. go leave this very important operation you're pursuing. Exactly. Turn up. I, I wasn't over there 15 minutes in my car, and I see his truck coming up the street that is exactly what that child had described. And so he gets closer, and I can see that it's it's an older guy with white hair, just like she described. So I pull out and follow him. And, and by the way, just to interrupt here real quick, you said it was the white van this time, right? It was, it was, no, it was a white truck. Uh, but the guy had white hair. Yeah, no, no, no. But I, I, from what you were saying, how there was two different girls who had two different vehicle descriptions. Yeah, yeah. One said it was a truck, a white truck, and one said it was a blue Mustang or a blue sports car. Uh, and this guy was in a white truck. And the both of the girls had said that he had white hair, like Santa Claus, one of them said. And sure enough, this guy's a head full of white hair. And uh, he come up the street. He turns, so I pull out behind him, and he just he makes the block, goes down, comes back up, and as he's approaching this group of little girls and with me right behind him, he does it. I mean, I can see him do it from my car. And <laughs> to say I got mad and excited all at the same time, you know, that w- that wouldn't really cover how I felt. I, st- I got on the radio, started screaming. Get over here! Get over here! He did! It. He did it right in front of me! Get over here! Stop him! <laughs> so, um, they come over there. They get him out of the truck, and he's got on uh, just a pair of shorts, loose fitting shorts that are like three sizes too big for him uh, to make it. You know, of course, he's wearing that to make it easy for him. Uh, but yeah, we took him back to station, took pictures of him, and then the next later that day or the next day or something. Uh, the t- detectives got a, a, an arrest warrant for him. And uh, I'm like, I'm serving this warrant. I'm going to get this asshole. And uh, I go over there and knock on the door. And as soon as he opens the door, I snatch him out of there. <laughs> he doesn't have any clothes on. He doesn't have a shirt on, pants. Uh, he's just in his underwear. And I'm, I'm like hooking him up. I'm like, come on, you're going to jail, asshole. And, uh, Wait a minute, let's, let's let him get his clothes on first. So I didn't think he deserved his clothes, but they did, and they outranked me. So 
but yeah, he, he ended up going to jail. And, uh, and, and what happened next was, was a part of this job that is so hard for, for guys like me to accept and cops everywhere, big city, small city, whatever. And, uh, I found out the next day that the sheriff knew this guy and had let him out on a PR bond. Basically, he walked into jail, walked out. Uh, never, never even spent any time at all in that jail. Uh, and, and for me, that that was just I, I couldn't understand how that could happen with what he was charged with. Yeah, and uh, and uh, you know it. That, that that was one of the first lessons of, of how politics worked for me. Uh, that's when I learned how how things you know can be in the world of politics in small towns and in counties like that. You, and, you said uh, eventually that, the guy really pissed me off. I, I think you said eventually the guy served a few years though, right? Yeah, yeah. Eventually he he went to prison and uh, done some time, uh, but. You know, when you put somebody in jail for flashing little girls, yeah. you, you expect him to stay in jail a day or two. You know, at the very least. Uh, but could could you elaborate uh, on the on a, a little bit more as far as the uh, small town politics and and the impact that has on being a small town cop? Well, small town politics they they run rampant in every small town, and it's. It can be hard to deal with, you know, uh, you got to make a decision when you become a small town cop, you know, are you, are you going to go through your career the easy way? And that's, you know, letting these people who think they're important or they're better than anybody else, you know, let them slide on things. Or are you going to enforce the law equally to everybody and deal with the consequences? And, uh, me being the type of person I am, I, I chose the latter. And, uh, you know, I, for instance, we had a, a lady in town, very, very wealthy lady, uh, in, in Kaufman. And, uh, she had the habit of, uh, getting intoxicated and, uh, she likes to take her clothes off and, you know, hang out when, when she got intoxicated and, uh, she would, uh, she was just, she could just get away with anything. And uh, one night, uh, I end up putting her, locking her up, bringing her to the station. And uh, before, I, I think it was public intoxication is why I hooked her up. And uh, before I could even even get her booked in, uh, the chief at the time come up there and, and uh, made me release her to some family members of hers. And... Uh, you know, I, another time, uh, there was a kid driving reckless through town and extremely reckless and uh, everybody knew him and his dad was another wealthy person. And I think he had been on the city council before and, uh, I ended up hooking him up for reckless driving and, you know, basically his, his attitude of, you know, screw you, I'm, you're not touching me. And, uh, again, before I got him booked in, you know, chief was on the phone, made me release him. Uh, so 
those were early in my career and, and it did get a lot better as my career went on. Uh, things weren't quite that, that bad there, you know, the last half of my, but, uh, yeah, I put the mayor's son in jail. <laughs> that didn't go over too well. Um, it, small town politics, you know, for some reason, people in these small towns who decide they're, that they're going to be on the city council or they're going to be mayor, they think that they're entitled, you know, with, for special treatment. And uh, it's, it's not just the town I worked in, but it's all small towns. You've got these people who just think they're untouchable because of who they are or what they do. And it can be hard on officers. It, it really can. Uh, I've seen so many officers struggle with, you know, should I put this person in jail? Should I, should I write them a ticket? You know, and my answer was always the same. What would you do if this was some stranger from out of town? Yeah. You do the same. How you know you treat everybody the same, and uh, it it can really sour you on on your career in law enforcement if uh, if you let that stuff get to you too bad. You know, uh, my my way of thinking was I'm going to do the right thing, and if I get in trouble for doing the right thing, then I'll deal with that then. And uh, but lucky for me, you know, I only had to raise hell a few times and uh, then it got a lot better. It strikes me that, uh, and correct me if I, if you think I'm wrong, that there's something special about our rural politics in America in that there, there aren't so many local newspapers that cover, um, let's say small town corruption. Um, you know, we're here in New York city. I mean, yes, there is absolutely plenty of corruption in this city, but we also have some pretty big institutions that, try to keep it in check that expose that kind of behavior. I feel like in small town America, there's just fewer and fewer, uh, let's say say small town newspapers or other organizations that kind of try to hold the local government to account. Yeah, I I agree with you. Uh, you know, small towns, everybody knows everybody. And even the people that run the local newspaper, uh, you know, they're, they're friends with these people in town that mm-hmm. they're reporting on. So, you know, they're going to pick and choose how big a wave they make. And uh, I've, I've had local reporters come to me and ask me about certain things or certain people or, or, or a certain crime that we were investigating. Uh, and... I would tell them the exact information that I tell the reporters from Dallas, you know, when it came to it. And it, it's amazing the difference in the <laughs> article in the Dallas paper and the article in the local paper. Uh, you can really tell. They're, you know, they're self-censoring. Area. I'm sorry? Th- that the, they're, uh, they're self-censoring. Oh, yes. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, big time. And uh, in today's, you know, what I call the anti-cop climate, uh, I'm I'm still seeing it in these small town newspapers. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you know, there's been some small town officers and and chiefs of police uh, around this area 
uh, in North Texas that have been, uh, busted doing, you know, illegal things. And you can, you compare the, the articles from, from that town's little newspaper to the ones from Dallas or Fort Worth. And it, it's so obvious that they're, <laughs> they're still exactly like you said, self-censoring. Since you mentioned, you know, as you put it, the anti-cop climate, I'd kind of like to hear your take on it because you are a guy, you know, for people who read the book who who treats everybody equally that, that you arrest, as you kind of just described, whether they're high profile or not. Um, but I think in, in this day and age, yeah, there is that movement of, of just all cops are bad that, yeah. you know, we don't need this in the community. But at the same time, there there's definitely been a bunch of cases of, of people exposing racial profiling, police brutality, and there's been some notable things that people have caught on video that may not have been brought to people's attention. Um, and th- I think the unfortunate thing is it then gets treated that yeah. this is what goes on every day. But, you know, wh- what's your take on it? Because I think on some level, there's also more accountability for the bad cops out there. Yeah. You know, no cop will tell you that there's not bad cops. No, no officer that you talk to will say, oh, you know, none of us are crooked. They're just framing us. There's bad cops all over the country, just like there's bad firefighters, there's bad preachers, there's bad, you know, you name it. It's just that when one, the way law enforcement is different, when one officer in one incident across the country gets caught doing something wrong, then every cop in America is doing that. And that's how we're treated. Or that's how we feel like we're treated. And, you know, in in a little small town Kaufman, we would catch hell as officers anytime an officer, you know, in California or, or New York or wherever got caught, you know, beating on somebody or or, you know, stealing money from people, things like that. And we'd have that thrown in our face in, in small town Kaufman. And, you know, that's just part of it. You just have to, you know, that's something that is never going to change. You just have to accept it. And, uh, but the frustrating part for me and a, and a lot of officers that I know that have worked with, the frustrating part is we're not allowed to stand up and defend ourselves. Yeah. We're not allowed to answer these people on, on Facebook, you know, uh, and, and anybody can get on Facebook or the Internet and accuse, uh, you know, Captain Black from the Coffin Police Department of, of anything, you know, and I just have to take it. I, I can't get on there and defend myself. The department won't allow it. The city won't allow it. And uh, that's the most frustrating part is that people can get out here and and throw out anything they want to say about any officer. And, and the fact that the fact is they know we can't defend ourselves. They know that they can make us look like a fool or look, make us look like anything really, you know, as far as your imagination can take you to to be, uh, we can't, 
so, sorry, I was just going to say to be objective here, you know, about the situation. And, you know, since, since you brought it up, I think that people on the other side of the spectrum, these groups like Black Lives Matter would say that it's more than just, you know, bad cops and good cops. And they'll always point to statistics of that police officers are more likely to draw a weapon on a person of color or, you know, arrest a person of color or, or pull someone over. I mean, yeah, I, I just but, would like to hear your take on that, because do, do you think that's true? Do you think there is a systemic problem there? I don't think there's a systemic problem of officers targeting any one minority as far as are there other are there individual officers out there doing that? Absolutely, of course. But is it systemic? Is it is it such a huge problem? The the stats will tell you that that's not the case. And for instance, in Kaufman, we were accused of, of racial profiling. Uh, you know, Hispanics at one point, and and the the uh, African American community several times had had accused us of that but when you pull the stats the racial profiling stats it's overwhelmingly caucasians that are being stopped and i'm talking about in in kaufman because i i have the facts from kaufman and when you would present those facts that they throw them in your face and say, well, well you, y'all are the ones that can change that. Y'all are manipulating the numbers. <laughs> you know, I don't think that, you know, out of, out of New York City, you know, the police department, half their cops are out here targeting, you know, all Hispanics just because they're Hispanic. For one thing, you know, it, it, sometimes it's very difficult to see who's driving a car. And, you know, probably 90% of cars are, have tinted windows. You can't see who's driving the car. And, and so when you stop the car, you go up there, they roll down the tinted, blacked-out windows, and it happens to be, you know, a Hispanic, and they start immediately jumping on you. You're targeting me because I'm Hispanic, because I'm Mexican. And you had no clue who was driving. But... Unfortunately, there's a few out there that make it harder on the majority, mm-hmm. and that's just the way it's always going to be. I want, to- and I and I don't want to. I don't want to be. I don't want anybody to think that I'm standing here saying that it's not happening because it absolutely is happening. I just think they blow each individual incident up and make it so much more than it than it is. On a somewhat lighter note, uh, because, I mean, your book gets into some pretty serious topics, but also there's just a lot of really funny stories in there. And it's laugh out loud. Uh, Yeah. yeah. I I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the the summer of public fornication (laughs) that uh, you became (laughs) well known for making busts uh, uh, of people uh, having amorous encounters in public spaces in your town. Oh my God, that, that, that was the strangest thing, uh, you know, and, uh, <laughs> uh, I caught so many people, uh, having sex in public places during this one summer that they, at the department, the, all the dispatchers changed the code number to that, to my number. And 
<laughs> it was crazy because I'd be like 905 checking out on a 905. And they would know exactly what I was out on. But it, it seemed like for some reason I couldn't go anywhere for about three months without rolling up on somebody that was having sex in public. And it was crazy. <laughs> and because it's a small town, you, you often knew these people personally. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, small town, you, you get to know everybody. And, uh, you know, I, for instance, uh, there's a story in there about this couple that I caught out at one of the the lakes, uh, the parks at the, uh, at the lake out there. And uh, there was an old pump house. And uh, I drive down in this way. There's only one little dirt road down way back into this uh, little boat ramp area. And it's not really a park. It's just an area where people would unload their boats and uh, pull back up in there. And there's, there's a, a local plumber truck and then another car there <laughs> and nobody's around. So uh, I get to look and sure enough, there's uh, one of the local plumbers and uh, a young lady uh, who uh, they, they, they're both married, but unfortunately not to each other. And uh, I knew both of them, knew both of their spouses. So I get out there and I walk up, and uh, this is this long pump house. This is a long, you got to go probably 40 feet out. And uh, all of their clothes are down here on the end where I'm at, and they're down on the other end at the pump house, and they're going at it like, I mean, I was proud of them. I mean, I really was. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're out there in this this pump house, this old pump house. It's full of wasps and yellow jackets and stuff. And they weren't concerned in the least bit. And, uh, so I, I yell at them, but they can't hear me because the wind is coming from behind me, blowing towards them, and, and they can't hear me. So I yell and I yell, and finally, after you know, I get up there and I finally get their attention. And, uh, I mean, he, he's, he's kind of a small guy, and she was not. She was a healthy lady. <laughs> and uh, I'm serious. It looked like a chihuahua going at it with a mastiff or something. And he, he, he was giving it hell, I'm telling you. I, I finally get their attention, and, and they've got to come down to me to get their clothes. And bless her heart, she was doing her damnedest to to hide what she had and then it just wasn't going to happen. And, uh, so she comes down there and the first words out of their mouth are, please don't run us on the radio. And, uh, cause everybody in town has scanners, you know, in a small town, everybody's got scanners. Cause they, they want to know exactly what we're doing. And, uh, so they, they begged me not to run them on the radio and, and, I didn't because I know who they are and I know neither one of them. Uh, they're not people I have to be concerned about. So, uh, I sent them on their way and, uh, after a, a lecture and, you know, and of course they would get out here in these places where they didn't think anybody else would, would show up. And, uh, that's where I like to show up. You make a lot of drug arrests. Yeah. You know, sometimes you come across this kind of stuff. 
But, uh, I like that story about how you even busted your male woman. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> that was actually in the same spot down there. Uh, <laughs> but they, they were pulled back there in a car and, uh, he was, when I got him out of the car, I noticed there was a video camera. He had set up a video camera in the car and was recording it. And, uh, of course, I, I get him out of the car and everything, you know, and, and I ask him, like, you're aware he's recording this, right? And she's like, yeah. And, uh, of course, she's asking me, look, you know, I, I is this going to go in the paper? You know, is my husband going to find out? And I'm like, look, and you just think, well, isn't here? And then y'all can be on your way. And, uh, yeah, she, uh, my mail was never late after that. My mail came on time every day. I mean, if I was waiting on anything, I got it quick. Oh, yeah, man. So it sounds like the, there were times where, where you were lenient about things that, you know, weren't oh, serious yeah. crimes. Well, you know, I was once, too. You know, I was younger once. Yeah. They weren't kids, but, you know, if they're not hurting anybody, I was I was apt to be a lot more lenient, you know. Uh, but we had this one park, the, the main park for the city, and it's where the playground is, and all the kids went there. And... uh they had some some uh, little, some little small building that had restrooms in it. We had had a male restroom and a female restroom, and uh, I had I would go out and I would check the restrooms. You know, never know what you're going to find. So I, I started noticing one this this same summer. I started noticing a lot of writing on the on the walls in the men's room. You know, meet me here. I'll be in this car. You know, meet me on this date. And uh, so I, I'm like, all right, cool. I'll catch these guys. And uh, I tried and tried and tried forever to catch whoever it was that was going out there. And uh, so one day I'm, I'm at the station. I'm eating lunch, I think. And we get a call, and it's a, a welfare check. And somebody at the park said, this guy went in the bathroom, and he's been in there for a long time, he, you know, she said he'd been in there for over an hour. And I immediately like, I know that's him. I know it is. So I, I jump my car and I'll fly out there. And uh, sure enough, I get there and there's two cars in the parking lot. And you had to walk down from the parking lot to this, this little building. And uh, so I, I get there and I, I get out and I turn my radio down real low. And I sneak up on this door and uh, and I jerk it open and sure enough, uh, there's one guy standing against the wall and the other one's on his knees and and you know he he, he was going to town. <laughs> and, uh, I jerk him out of there. I'm like, get on this wall, you know, blah blah blah. And uh, I arrest him and <laughs> I, I, I impound their cars and I arrest them and get them back to the station and. Then, and the next day, the chief calls me in. And uh, I go into the office, and, and, and the gentleman who was the giver, I guess you would say, is sitting there in the chief's office. And 
He says, uh, Officer Black, uh, this is so-and-so. I said, yeah, we've met. And he says, uh, he claims that there was a misunderstanding yesterday uh, when, when you opened the restroom door. And, uh, of course, he's sitting there shaking his head. Yeah, yeah, it's just a big misunderstanding. And the chief says, uh, he's claiming that, uh, you know, he, he dropped his keys and was was bent over in front of this other gentleman who was just standing there waiting to go to the bathroom. And that's when you open the door. What do you have to say about that? And I said, well, I mean, it could, could have happened, but how did this guy's pecker fall out into his mouth? <laughs> that's the part I'm having problems with. And he just looks at me and goes, uh, Officer Black, that, that's a year clear. You can go ahead. So, so I left. And I thought, okay, well, this is a done deal now. No. A little while later, here comes this guy's wife. And she's she's a, a big, tall English woman. And uh, she's like, uh, I, you know, I want to know what happened because I don't think he's telling me the truth. And I'm like, well, what's he telling you? And she says, well, she claims he was in the bathroom, dropped his keys, blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, that's not what happened. I said, you know. And then I told her. I said, yeah, he, he was doing what he was doing. She said, well, this is the second time he's been arrested in a public restroom. And the first time was in Houston, and he got arrested because with a bunch of other men. And he claims he had just walked in there to go to the restroom when they busted the place. And I said, well, I can assure you that's not what happened. So... <laughs> She, uh, he, it comes out, it turns out he's a uh, local, uh, he's a, he's a local bigwig in one of the churches and he was due to leave the next week to go on a mission trip. And, uh, needless to say that didn't happen. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and those are the type of stories you're going to get in this book. I mean, it's a, yeah. like, like you said, you deal with some serious issues, but it's a lot of laugh out loud. Uh, just funny stories oh, yeah. from being a small town cop. So people should really check it out. Um, you know, I liked in there that you did a dedication to, you know, officers that you've served with who have fallen. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you one last question, actually really two, but I, I wanted to get your take on kind of another serious thing, but you, you've since left the, um, police department and really since that time has grown the height in, in, I guess, popularity or, um, or just the use of body cams. And uh, yeah. I, I just want to hear, you know, because that plays into what you were saying before about the mentality out there. I've had cops actually have emailed the show before and have said they're glad that the body cams are being used because, you know, now it shows that the story that they're telling is exactly what went down. And, and you know, these guys can't just make up a story then after they get arrested. Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? I just kind of wanted to hear your take on that. I, I think body cameras are the greatest thing going. I mean... Any cop who doesn't want a body cam is crazy because a body cam can keep you out of trouble a hundred percent of the time. You know, if you're doing right and you've got a body cam, then you never have to worry about anything. And I can't tell you how many times I had citizens come in to complain uh, about one of my officers and we didn't have body cams at the time, but we had the, the cameras in the cars. 
and uh, and, and of course the officers had the, the microphones on them. And I can't tell you the amount of times that someone would come in and claim that that my officer had been rude or my officer had cussed them or you know anything else. And of course, the first thing you do is go and pull the video. And my favorite thing of all time was bringing them in and setting them down and playing that video and saying, <laughs> show me where this happened. And, you know, they, they would always suddenly get in a hurry to leave. <laughs> and uh, body cameras are, are they're the greatest thing. And, and like I said, any cop that doesn't want them is just crazy. Uh, if I was out there right now, I would not go on duty without a body camera. Well, if so. I had to buy my own. Man, yeah, I mean, so it sounds just, like the people doing the right thing are are happy with the new technology. Um, and then the last thing I was going to ask you, unless Jack has anything, is that so the way that I was able to contact you because uh, you're not you're actually a guy who's not out there on social media, not you know trying to be high profile. And as I said, the book is relatively hard to find. Hopefully, we get it on Amazon. Not anymore. It's not. People are going to look for it after this. Yeah. So hopefully, if you can get it on oh, Amazon, okay. but I will I will shoot out the link. You know, it'll be in the description on Lulu where people could buy it. Um, since it's available on there, but the, the way I was able to contact was I made contact with the Coffin Police Department. They got in touch with you, so you, you know you're now retired. What are you since doing now that you're a retired police officer? Well, I, you know I haven't been retired, but just for a few months, and uh, I'm still trying to figure out this retirement thing. <laughs> uh, I'm having a lot of a lot of people are asking me to write another book, and uh, so I, I've been kicking that around, but. but so far, I've just been at home aggravating the hell out of my wife and, and you know, <laughs> trying to find something to do with myself. Uh, I would like to eventually uh, do some, you know, maybe I was involved in an on-duty shooting uh, a few years ago. And uh, that experience, I was not prepared for that experience at all. Uh, I had never had anybody tell me what's going to happen. And I, I'm, I'd like to try to develop some type of course or training, you know, uh, that I can go around and tell these officers, if you're ever involved in a, in a critical incident or a shooting, or, you know, this is what is going to have happen to you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that experience uh, was, you know, three or four years ago. And believe it or not, that whole saga for me came to an end last month. Wow. Uh, and you know, it, it can really, it can really hurt families of officers and, uh, if they're not prepared for it. And I'd like to do something like that. Uh, you know, if you do, I mean, I'd lo love to have you back on the show to talk about that. Um, I, I think the only other question, I mean, we could talk about the, the funny and stories in this book. And as I said, I have to finish reading it tonight, but, I think the real question I wanted to ask you was about police work and policing. Um, and I recall, I believe it was the chief of police of Dallas, actually, who was talking um, after uh, one of those mass shootings. And he's like, you know, every social problem we have, we're dumping on our police officers and we're asking them to deal with a drug problem, deal with, you know, homelessness, deal with this, deal with that. And all these things that policing was never meant to solve. And I just wanted to ask about your perspective as a small town cop. I mean, do you agree with that? Do you think that we, I mean, obviously we ask a lot of our police officers. Do you think we're asking too much? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Without, without a doubt. 
the biggest example I can give you right off the top of my head are people with mental illness. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you, and, and this is probably going to piss a lot of people off, but it's truth. You know, there are times when we will deal with someone who is obviously mentally ill and just cannot find resources to do anything with them. I mean, it's, it's, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, you know, um, for a long time, uh, for the majority of my career, you know, when you picked up somebody like this or, or somebody suicidal or whatever, uh, you know, you would call around to try to get them into a, a, a mental health facility. And, you know, there's only, you know, just a few around this area that, that we could call. And if they were full or they said no, then what do you do with them? And the answer was most of the time we'd take them back home and just put them at their house. I mean, there's nothing else we could do. Uh, the problem's getting better. It's getting, uh, there's, there's more resources today than I think there was two years ago. And, uh, but you, you know, officers receive about 40 hours of mental health training, uh, to dealing with the mentally ill and 40 hours is nothing compared to yeah. what, you know, what you need to know to deal with these, some of these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, like you said, when we first started here, you know, we, we, when you become a cop, uh, everywhere, but especially in, in small towns, you become everything. You become a, a psychologist, you become a, a nurse, you become, a, you know, counselors, teachers, you name it. Because there's a lot of times when you're, you're presented with a situation that you've got somebody and the only thing you can do is try to talk them down or talk them into a good place mm-hmm. so that you can leave them and go back to work. Uh, but yes, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're dumping so much on officers today that they're just not trained for, they're not prepared for. And, uh, then sometimes that's what ends up getting one of them in trouble. And, you know, they end up paying the the consequences for that because they weren't trained. Uh, so I agree with, with everything that that chief said. Well, Edward, if uh, you know you get that project off the ground, um, please stay in touch with us and uh, reach out. And uh, I think it would be a, a great topic. I mean, we talk about PTSD and things like that as it relates to soldiers, um, but we've never really gotten so much into that and how it affects law enforcement officers. So, I mean, maybe talking about your experience in a um, you know a work related shooting and going through that whole process uh, that might be very beneficial for a lot of people. Oh yeah, and and uh, there there's a, uh, a a website or an organization called Blue Help out there right now, and they're tracking law enforcement suicides. And so far in this year, and we're just at beginning of March. So far, there has been, I believe, the last number was forty three wow. police officers or ex officers that have killed themselves That's this a lot. year. Yeah, and uh, so it's becoming a, a it's becoming more of a priority now to get to get you know, guys like me and, and all officers, uh, 
some help dealing with what they see and what they deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. It's, uh, it's interesting because as a soldier, you have this experience where you deploy to a place like Iraq. Maybe you see some things, do some things uh, that are traumatic, then come back home. Um, at least you have some, some, some frame of reference that you're in a different place. Maybe you're in a safer place. You're back home in the United States. But for a police officer, I mean, you live in the community where you work. And whatever, whatever craziness you're experiencing on the streets, I mean, it's, it's got to feel like you, you can never get away from it. No, you you can never get away from it, and you know, and, and the biggest thing with with small towns is like we we've said a couple of times, you know, you know these people, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I as I, I tell a story in the book about uh, a guy named Galleon who I talk to this guy two or three times a week, you know, he'd be at Seven Eleven getting coffee, or and I'd swing in to get a drink, and and I talk to this guy all the time. He's he was seemed like a great guy, and. uh I pulled up one day. I saw him washing his, his, he drove a truck. I saw him washing his truck in the driveway and, uh, I stopped and hollered at him, told him to wash my squad car, you know, and, uh, next day he, he murdered his wife and daughter. Holy you shit. Know. Yeah. And, uh, uh, the daughter was the exact same age as my, my daughter was at the time. And, and unfortunately I was the one that, that had to go in and find her body her and her mother's body. And, you know, that's not something that you just, oh, well, let's go to lunch now. Yeah. You know, it's not something that you just forget. And, uh, you know, I, I can remember the smell of that house. I can remember, you know, every detail about that day. And that was many years ago. Uh, so, yeah, you know, you know these people and you get to know what's going on with them. And then you never know, you know, the next day, Bam! Something like this could happen. Is that in your book? Yes. Okay. No, yeah, I, I just haven't gotten to that part book. yet. Yeah, wow. that's in there. Uh, you know, there's a lot of hilarious stories in the books. Uh, a lot of people have told me that, that they're just rolling, uh, reading the book, and and uh, of course, every time I hear that, it, it makes me feel good <laughs> because you know I, I like I like to inject humor in, in the things that I do, and and in this. This career that I was in, you know, you either laugh or you cry. Yeah, yeah. And so, so you, you know, you got to look at it like that. But no, I really, I'm really enjoying that aspect of the book because it, it's it's very raw and, it, and it's very real. I mean, it's telling the the absurdity of the job as well as you know the horror of it at other times. Yeah, well, I sure appreciate you saying that. That 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 means a lot to me because that's exactly what I was going for. Yeah, you know, tell it like it is, but you know be able to laugh at it too for sure yeah thanks so much the uh the book once again is captain black true stories of a small town cop and uh the link in the description here i'll have to the store on lulu and uh hopefully you'll have it up elsewhere but you know this audience could go right there and pick up the paperback and uh yeah yeah i'll I'll do my best to get it on amazon (laughs) (laughs) yeah for sure i mean people could order it there but i think there's some people who might want it digitally and all that um you know people who do the kindle but uh, it's a great book. Pick it up, and and thanks for making the time. And I'm glad we were able to uh, track you down. It's it's cool that they, you know, were were able to contact you for me. Because um, like I said, most of the people we book on the show, they're on Instagram, they're on Twitter, and you're a guy who's you know at this point enjoying life as a private citizen. Yeah, I sure am, and I you know I sure appreciate you having me on, and uh, I've enjoyed it, and 
I wish you guys the best. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much. Very interesting interview there. Um, we'll recap some things, but uh, be sure to check out Crate Club. We have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be. Gift options are available as well. Scott Whitner from the Loadout Room, Army Ranger Drew Wallace, who you've heard on the show, and all the other guys from Hurricane involved with Crate Club are putting together great gear. We have a lot of 100% custom products made for us, everything from sunglass cases to EDC bags and other manly products, although um, we, for the premium crate, we've had some bigger stuff thrown in that's not our own, like the Vertex Swing Bag. Uh, it's a club for men, by men. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. Also, as a reminder for those listening, now is the time to sign up for the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country, everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops Channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Um, and then the latest thing that we've been pushing out, hopefully um, you guys are signed up because we're trying to get more and more people into this. It's the News Rep Financial Report, exclusive information that you can act on today to secure a brighter future for tomorrow. The News Rep Financial Report can help you discover new investment strategies in the defense sector. Defense industry stocks can be a lucrative investment if you buy at the right time. Our team of foreign policy, security, and military experts provide real-time intelligence for stocks based on global trends that affect financial markets in the national defense industry. By subscribing now, you'll get exclusive access to our industry expertise, the NewsRep Financial Newsletter Advantage, which is our team that offers unmatched defense industry familiarity and expertise, unbiased knowledge of geopolitical trends, Full access to NewsRep's foreign policy, security, and financial intelligence platform, as well as access to our team of experts and analysts. So just go to the FINREP, F-I-N-R-E-P, tab at the top of the NewsRep.com to sign up. That's the FINREP tab at the top of the NewsRep.com. Go there now, the NewsRep.com. Click on FINREP, and this is basically exclusive. It's not just for... um members of the site this is its own thing so sign up for that fin rep on news rep great having um captain black on this episode and i think it brings some new flavor to the show and like we said there's a heavy law enforcement um presence that listens to this show and hopefully you guys got something out of that as well as people who want to learn more about you know the small town cop it's a great book pick it up um before we wrap things up i wanted to mention uh, a lot of people have been commenting on this because, uh, you know, Don Shipley's YouTube channel is very popular among people like our audience who love seeing the stolen valor stuff and exposing the fake Navy SEALs. And I mean, a lot of them are really just so entertaining. And uh, YouTube has shut down Don Shipley's channel. Uh, I know he's kind of suspicious about the timing of it because the last video that he did was exposing the, you know, alleged uh, Vietnam veteran who went up to those kids in the Make America Great Again hats. Uh, who was and, not a Vietnam veteran. Yeah, and, and no one did fact-checking. I mean, he went on CNN, and they called him a Vietnam veteran, and then he started saying, I'm a Vietnam Times veteran. 
And, you know, Don Shipley did his research, and the guy was not a Vietnam veteran, regardless of how the news reported on it. And uh, shortly after that last expose, which got a lot of attention, he was shut down. Uh, and the platform said it was basically because of harassment and, and information that he was giving out there that other people could use. Um, but, I mean, he's been doing this for years, and suddenly he gets shut down. And it does kind of suck for people who love his channel. Yeah, I don't know what the exact offense was or, or alleged offense was that, that Don Shipley committed that got his YouTube channel banned. But Yeah, if I, if I find um, – I, I could read their statement – if I uh, find it here, because I, I think I sent you an article, but it's been covered uh, like here. This one's from AmericanMilitaryNews.com, who we know the guys behind. Um, let's see here. So here's what he told PJ Media. He said, this time I was told, or is there something before that? Um, yeah, it says previously uh, Shipley's videos were taken down for YouTube occasionally um, for violations ranging from music or movie copyrights. All right, that's normal. Um, Shipley knew it would be a matter of time until his entire channel would be banned, which is exactly what happened February 21st, Fox reported last week. Um, and he was interviewed on PJ Media and said, this time I was told and emailed that I was banned from a video I had posted several years ago about a phony Navy SEAL. But after several years, I doubt that caused it. If you ask me, it was because I outed Nathan Phillips, that Indian who masqueraded as a Vietnam vet. Um, but there was another article I sent you, though, that had YouTube statement, which might be the Fox News one. Let me see if I could find that. Uh, if he'd already had a bunch of suspensions, maybe it was like one of those three strikes you're out kind of thing. Yeah, um, but here's what it says. YouTube in an email to Fox News said Shipley's account was terminated because he was sharing too much information. The company said that info could be used to identify other people, and YouTube claimed Shipley sometimes enticed Internet users to reach out to those people in his videos directly to criticize them. Oh, that's probably why. YouTube takes harassment and the sharing of an individual's private information like home addresses and phone numbers seriously, and we have strict policies against it in our community guidelines. We review flagged content and remove inappropriate videos or terminate accounts, um, terminate channels according to these policies. Uh, you know, it, it is interesting timing. I don't know. I mean, that makes sense as well. I could also see, say that, uh, or I, I could also see that for these guys who get exposed, it probably, I mean, needless to say, it pisses them off. Then they can get their friends yeah. and family members to report it to YouTube and, and, and his get whole channel. Yet, and his entire channel is dedicated to exposing phony veterans. So for every one of those videos, I'm sure that he gets a lot of complaints and then those all pile up. And I'll tell you just a little personal anecdote. Um, there's this person on Twitter actually pretend they were pretending to be a seal actually. And they were harassing me. And I was like, so I'm like, who the fuck is this person? And I was able to figure out who it was. And it's this woman who's just a total fucking psycho, uh, like a well-known psycho, like people know she's nuts. Um, and, um, I, I like said it publicly. I actually said it on Facebook and elsewhere and saying like, this is, here's this account, this person pretending to be a seal. It is actually this person. She's a fucking psycho. Uh, I don't think I said she was a fucking psycho, but I, I said something to that effect. Like this, this person's whacked in the head. And, um, a couple of years later I got suspended. I got put in Facebook jail for like <laughs> two whole weeks over that post. So I can only imagine that she must've gone back in time and found that and reported it 
And then yeah, and and if um oh what was that article I posted or it? or you can get um as you said strikes on your account for different things because the the more one of the more recent high profile deplatformings I know of um and he's back on because I you know I watch a lot of fitness stuff uh, on YouTube. There's this very controversial guy in the fitness community named Vegan Gains, and he Vegan Gains, yeah, he's this <laughs> vegan guy, and he's very into fitness, and he's very into saying that well, you know eating meat is like the worst thing in the world, and you know. But anyway, he does these videos called Worst of the, Worst of the Fitness Industry, and it'll you know criticize a lot of people, most of them who do eat meat or uh, encourage the eating of meat and that type of thing. But anyway, he he did an interview with um, my friend Sadiq works on that channel RX Muscle owned by Dave Palumbo and did an interview about it. And he says that, yeah, it, it was like he had strikes from years ago for stuff that he said about other people. And then it all added up. YouTube deplatformed him, but then he was able to get back on there. There is a, that there, happened. There's an article. I can't remember it off uh, offhand. Uh, I posted it on Twitter uh, about who does this stuff for Facebook. And so Facebook outsources it to smaller companies. And um, this journalist got a bunch of sources inside one of the, these companies um, to talk to her. And they're, they're basically just a bunch of kids working at minimum wage um, in kind of shitty conditions. And they have to sit there in front of the computer, very strict hours, very strict breaks they're allowed to take. And um, anything that's been flagged, by users on Facebook, it shows up and they have to make the determination based on policy guidelines from Facebook. Do you, what, what action do you take? Do you remove the content? Do you ban the user? Like, what do you do? And so, and a lot of these people, young people are like fucking traumatized because yeah. they're seeing like murders and shit, all, the, every, all kinds of yeah. stuff every day. Um, and so they just fall into these like depressions and they start using drugs and stuff like that. That is not something so, I would want to do. It, it gives you, it gives you an insight into like what's really going on, um, in, within these companies. And I, I mean, we're really, I, there's a lot of accusations that it's political, that it's this and that. And I think if you read that article, you'll see that it, it's actually just a bunch of people working for minimum wage, trying to make the best decision they can based on, um, very opaque guidance from Facebook itself that doesn't make sense to them and contradicts itself. Yeah. And so it comes down to some guy sitting behind a screen or, or girl sitting behind a screen that like has to make a determination. I, I, I would not want to do that job, as I said, because um, the one thing that it reminds me of is, uh, so at my previous job, there were guys in my office who loved to go on World Star Hip Hop every day and mm -hmm. see those like videos of and and World Star Hip Hop World for Star who, yeah for those World who don't know Star. it's it's way more um just people behaving badly than anything it's like to it's do like with women fighting each other in McDonald's and stuff yeah it's stuff like that but then there's also stuff in there that's just really dark I feel like where you'll see you know someone some guy just minding his own business getting jumped by like ten people and. I saw on on Facebook um, back in the day when the Syrian civil war was starting up and like the death, ISIS the, stuff. I remember the, that the death squads were going around, and I, I remember. I mean, I saw a video of, of children being tortured on on Facebook. Yeah, so I I don't know. If I've seen that. I saw, I've seen I saw some, videos of entire families executed actually in Syria. I, I've seen some pretty crazy shit though because of World Star and some other stuff, and it's like. I, I do not like to look at that. I, I just yeah. block it out now. 
And it's not because I really do feel like everything you look at, everything you listen to, it's going to affect your mentality. And that's why I don't even, you know, watch mainstream news anymore. I try to watch things that are just more positive or uh, interesting. And I mean, I do stay informed, but I even think if you're the type of person who's on Twitter nonstop being outraged by everything, it's just not good for your mentality. So I really don't. It's one of of those things like, are you looking at this for a reason? Are you, you trying to do something productive and helpful or are you just like gawking like people gawk at a car crash? Yeah. You know, well, well, and I think it's changed everything in that today. Um, you know, when someone jumps in front of a, uh, railroad and commits suicide, you, you literally see stories now, people just whipping out their phones and taking video of it. And then, you know, really irresponsibly major publications airing that type of thing. You know, I, re- I really thought it was a poor decision, for example, when those um, news anchors were um, shot and killed live on TV. I remember that. My, my friend Amanda Kenny worked for that news station, knew those news anchors, and I thought it was a really poor decision by, you know, I, I, I know the New York Post, had the, the cover was those news anchors being shot. And I, I, I think something like that should not be the the front page of a newspaper the families of those those people who just were working in news don't want to see that yeah i mean it's one of those things like do you show people like literally exactly what happened or or not i mean i don't know yeah uh, so i i think just the way media is today has changed things and and i do hate to see that that more people I think are less likely to help out during a terrible situation than to whip out their phones, take video of it, and then send it to World Star Hip Hop or put it on YouTube. I mean, that's not the way things should be. No, it shouldn't be. Um, I don't know. There, I'm sure there's like some psychological studies on that, like the phenomena where people act like meerkats, you know, where it's like, you know, like like you ever see those documentaries like National Geographic where like the alligator comes out of the watering hole and like grabs an, an animal yeah. and starts pulling it in. And what do the other animals do? They stand there and watch. Like they look. That, and that's, that's what I think we've become in I, many ways. I think that's what we've always been. Yeah. But, but, now, but now with it's technology, more, it's gotten worse. Yeah, now, now it's more obvious. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So uh, anyway, I don't even know how we got onto that from from uh, Don <laughs> from, Shipley. Cats. But but this has been an interesting episode. Go pick up uh, Edward's Black Edward Black's book. Next episode, we're gonna have Jake's wig on. I haven't I know, spoken to Jake in a while. Jake actually texted me out of nowhere, and he told me about this family that that needed help, um, and they needed um, a car, and you know the single mother and everything. But the thing is, I hadn't ta- spoken to Jake in years, so. I was like, who, who is this? And then I realized it was Jake's wig, and I checked out the GoFundMe and you know helped out. Uh, so maybe he'll talk about that because he's been very hands-on with this family. He was like, they're you know, fans of Dude, You're Screwed, and, and this woman reached out to me, and he started this GoFundMe okay, up. And cool. It, I think it's cool when people do grassroots stuff like that to help, and he raised a lot of money for this woman. And then he has other things going on uh, professionally. I think Jake's just an interesting guy because he became this, like, I, I noticed from the first time we had him on, um, because I wasn't a guy who watched Top Shot. He became like this villain uh, in the uh, community when we'd have him on for the first time. I got so many messages that were like, this guy's a jerk. Why do you have him on? And it, it turns out like a lot of that was done due to clever editing of the shows he was on to make him kind of the villain of the well, show. Yeah, that's what that's what uh, those reality TV shows do is like somebody, there are the, like those different roles people have to fill. There's the hero, there's the villain. Yeah. I remember talking to one woman who was on a uh, on a reality TV show, and it was like they needed a character to be the bitch. 
So yeah. they, they edited it and made it out so that I was the bitch. <laughs> she was like horrified by it. Yeah, I mean, be careful if you sign up for some type of reality show or something because they could edit it however they want. I, I, hey, I was on reality TV. In you a were sense. technically. I mean, true. it was a technically. I got to be the hero character, though. <laughs> yeah. Do you still get hit up about that? I mean, I thought it was a cool, cool concept for a show. And Someone at my daughter's school said, I, I saw your father on TV. He was building a death ray. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Even though you technically were not the guy. I did not, I did not build it, no. Who uh, was the guy again? He uh, was- Aaron. He was a super talented guy. Aaron is a uh, yeah. He's he's like a mad scientist. Uh, he builds Tesla uh, technology for a living. That's his whole job. Yeah, um, you could probably still watch um, that show, right? Yeah, you can find it on like video on demand, Discovery Channel, right? Uh, yeah, it's I can't remember the name of it. I think it's like the Tesla Files or Murder yeah. Declassified. Yep, I yep. think that's the title of it. You should know. I mean, it was your show. Yeah, they cha- <laughs> they changed it several times while we were in production, though. So, yeah, next show, Jake's Wig. We have Mike Schlitz coming back on. I'd love to hear what Mike's been Definitely. up to. It's been several years since yeah. we've had him. And then, like I said, we're going to do this email show. So email any questions to softrep.radio at softrep.com. We have a bunch coming in, and uh, we'll try to answer anything that you can. on. And I'll forward it over to you, as we said, Jack. Yeah, I will, uh, I'll, I'll put out some feelers on social media, too, with the email if people want to send yeah. mail in. Absolutely, because you know we don't get to answer as much as we'd like. So. Yeah, I'll, I will. I will try to review as many of the emails as I can beforehand. So if you guys ask like super elaborate or specific questions that I don't know the answer to, I can you know hit up some of my contacts and do a little bit of research, and maybe I can find out for you. Good stuff. And then after that, we'll be airing our Kristen Beck interview, and then Rob O'Neill. So plenty of great cool. interviews on the horizon. Uh, as always, at SoftRep Radio on Twitter, at SoftRep Radio on Instagram, we have Facebook.com slash SoftRep Radio. Uh, and now we're about to record the video segment we've been doing for the newsrep.com. Mm-hmm. So be on the lookout for that as well. The newsrep.com and uh, newsrep on Instagram and Twitter. Cool. You've been listening to SoftRep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.